You're tuning in to Tales from the Desolate Highway, your one-stop shop for the history of post-apocalyptic literature. I'm your host, Nathan Ogloff. Let's fire this bad boy up. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Whenever you're listening to this, I'm going to let you know what's going on with me there, Legionnaires. Uh, I'm in the final stretches of getting my book done. Hopefully by, I want to say, April, I can start looking into doing query letters for agents. So that's exciting. Before I do this week's book, as you remember from last week, I was starting to let you guys know a little bit more about me, especially why I write. Uh, This week, I'm going to touch up on some of my hobbies, specifically... My love for heavy metal and Lego. Not to be confused with the Ralph Bakshi movie, Heavy Metal. Although I like that too. So Lego, yeah, I said to myself, I will stop messing around with it when I get tired of it. And I never did. Lately, like within the past um, four years, I've been designing spaceships in Lego Studio, which is this computer program that allows you to make whatever you want and you're only limited by the technical specifications of your own computer. So I have like all of uh, these, you can see on my Instagram page, by the way, Uh, my largest completed creation, which is almost 45,000 pieces. And I'm currently working on my next one, which I think is already over 45,000 pieces, and I haven't even completed the hull yet. So that's my Lego stuff. And while I build, I tend to listen to a lot of heavy metal. So if you look at my Spotify playlist at the moment, I have a heavy metal Well, some of it's just hard rock playlist that is over 1,500 songs and 80 bands worth of music. I've always liked rock and metal, but it wasn't until about, again, four years ago that I started listening to it almost exclusively. So it all started when I found an 80s uh, glam playlist on YouTube and listened to that and came across some tracks that just kicked ass. And I then found other playlists and more tracks that kicked ass. It wasn't, uh, it was with the Die for Metal by Manowar that I was like, yes, yes, this is my music. I had never held my head so high until I heard that song. And I think the other reason it speaks to me is because if you hear enough of it, you realize it was made by people that are into quite nerdy things. They often talk about witches and demons and wizards and the forces of magic. Yeah, it almost makes me want to do that. Uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor grunt, but alas, I will spare you of it. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, now on to this week's book, Delusion Dawn by S. Fowler Wright, written in 1928, which is actually two books I uh, found out this week. So the first is called Deluge, and the other is called Dawn. So you guys are getting a two-for-one deal this week, so let's start with Deluge. Uh, we start with the prelude which just describes the nature of the catastrophe before the bulk of the story begins. I'll let you know the details later, but first I'm going to tell you what happens in the beginning. So we start off with our two main characters, Martin and Helen Webster, having lunch with a neighbor, Mrs. Templeton, who the novel says has no children because she is completely barren, a barrenness that she caused herself. Why are we being told this? Well, it's because the author has some controversial ideas about eugenics, and he just had to put it into the novel. I think it was this idea of, if you don't have the proper genes, just don't have kids. Anyway, that's why. Uh, so after we cut tonight, when everyone is sleeping, uh, Martin wakes up to a phone call and notices the wind is blowing, like, real hard. I'm talking real hard. It's the police. 
letting him know that a tree has fallen down on the way to a on the way to his house and they want him to hang a lantern from it so that people don't crash right into it. Why they just didn't do it themselves? Uh, they probably didn't have access to it. So they're like, let's just get this guy to do it. Uh, he does this, but finds the wind is blowing so hard. He has to crawl on the ground sometimes, but he manages to do it. However, when he gets home, the phone rings again. The shit is hitting the fan. The Mediterranean is overflowing. Parts of Spain and Italy are getting ripped up. Then the line cuts off. A series of tremors had created a global flood, but it's not just a flood, because some parts of the world sink while others rise. And it's kind of weird that the low-lying areas rise, like Denmark and England, while others sink. But that's just, that's what starts to happen. That's what we're getting. Anyway, uh, so at this point, Martin is like, well, we gotta get the hell out of here. He takes the kids to a quarry while Helen packs up the stuff at their house. But the house collapses on her. So he has to frantically dig her out. It's worse. A piece of glass has pierced her, but she survives. He takes her to the quarry, then walks off to salvage supplies. Whilst he, whilst he does that, he sees collapsed buildings, dead people, and people that can't cope with disaster. For instance, he sees a miner digging into an embankment for no reason at all. Then the miner attacks Martin because he's gone insane. But Martin, Martin manages to hold his own and kill him. The more jarring scene is when Martin comes across a woman who's about to die and he realizes she crashed into the tree he hung a lantern from, which I guess wasn't very useful. Uh, like, like she went right through the front window of her car and got flung onto the road. So unfortunately, he can't do anything for her at the moment. But, I mean, if he can't, no one can. She, she's gone. Uh, before he can return, Martin realizes the ground is sinking as it tilts. And that's not a river overflowing, that's the ocean flooding in. And he left his family in a pit. He gads! What Martin doesn't know is that Helen managed to find a boat and float away in time, but because they can't swim and Martin doesn't find them back at the quarry, he just assumes they're dead. Uh, this leads us to book two, and I should have mentioned earlier that Deluge is split into five books. Uh... Book 2 introduces us to another character, Claire, and takes place three months later, because that's all it took in this story for things to fall apart completely. Three months. So Fowler goes into a lot of detail about Claire, spends a good deal on what she looks like, and it's pretty much just good-looking, slim figure, and athletic. And he does also talk about her background, that she was married, lost her husband, and had a miscarriage. Jesus, a kid and a husband lost. That's rough. Uh, she's described as being a good swimmer, which was inspired by real-life events because it had only been recently that the first woman successfully swam across the English Channel. Now, this is one of the more positive depictions of women we've seen on this podcast. Uh, for example, she's good at the gun, but at the time we first see her, she's stuck living with two men, Jepson and Norwood. Jepson is a woodsman, and I think he and thinks he can have Claire whenever he wants. Uh, because he was hired by someone else to repair the cabin before the flood, and he feels entitled to the Midlands Island they all find themselves on, and whoever is on it. So it's Claire and Norwood's job to go to the new coast every day to salvage, which lets her see some interesting stuff, like a dead sheep carcass. All we hear about Norwood is he's an alcoholic and a former cricket player, and kind of useless. When he makes a move on Claire, uh, Jepson, uh, she defends herself with a nail on the board, and at that point decides it's best she just leave. And because she's an expert swimmer, and because she doesn't want to hamper herself, and because the book is written by a man, 
She swims nude to another island, where she finds a cabin with a hearth and falls asleep beside it. Later, she is discovered by the old shepherd who lives there with his invalid daughter. Claire, in exchange for being allowed to stay at the cabin, nurses the daughter back to health. She can't stay, so the shepherd gives her something to wear as she swims to the next island. At this point, the story cuts back to Martin. Three months after the disaster, he is camped in a train tunnel, far enough down that no one will see him. I'm guessing he sets up uh, traps to avert people trying to enter his space closer to the tunnel exit. Uh, there's a camp he gives a wide berth after discovering a dead, sexually assaulted woman's body close by uh, while he was scavenging. This group is led by a man named Bellamy, and one day, uh, Martin, while going to the water, he sees someone swimming to the shore. And who else could it be but Claire? He hides in the bushes at first, not knowing who she is, and then she takes off her suit, but because he's a gentleman, he lets her know that he can see everything. Uh, because of that, Claire decides he's a good guy, much better than Jepson, and so she settles and goes back with him to his camp and rests. They talk about their experiences. He's more into her than she is to him, which uh, I'm pretty sure happens more often than I'd like to admit. Uh, anyway, Martin begs her to stay a day, just a day with him, because they can go to the, this house he knows of and dig up some supplies. The following day at the house, he wants to get clothes for her from upstairs and tells her he'll do it because there are dead bodies up there. But she says she's seen worse, so is willing to go herself. He goes to the garden instead, and at this point a wild boar runs through it and gets caught in the fence. Claire realizes this is a good opportunity to get some meat. So they hogtie it and take the pig to the kitchen, and after some hesitation, realize that killing the pig is a lot harder... Then it looks. With the supplies and meat in hand, he makes a cart for everything, and he makes sure that cart can be transported down a rail line back to his camp. Claire did help a lot, uh, letting Martin know she isn't entirely helpless, but first they need to get some fresh water. So while getting the water, they notice a pudgy man floating down it. Martin immediately recognizes the man as Joe the Jockey, because he used to ride horses. Then there is this game of Joe seeing them and acting like he... Didn't, didn't, while they spy on him, uh, acting like they didn't see him. Joe lets Bellamy know. Bellamy and his gang track uh, them down. Martin fights off Bellamy, but manages to get, Bellamy manages to get Claire and take him back to the camp. Bellamy has plans for Claire, mostly of the rape kind. But first, he wants to eat dinner, a mistake on his part because Martin tracks them down, incapacitates Bellamy, and makes chaos in the camp. While doing this, they come across the old hag that tied up Claire. A Fowler Wright makes a comment that they can't do anything with the hag because no one wants her and she's not the best example of womanhood. So in a case of Ghost of the Machine, he imparts this knowledge onto Martin and Claire, which just leave her alone as they escape. Uh, they hide in some brambles where the gang almost finds them, but doesn't because they aren't bright, they're just violent. In the heat of the moment, Claire and Martin passionately throw themselves at each other, and a little too much so because Claire gets pregnant. Well, after they get back to the camp, Bellamy's gang comes after them, and this part, this whole siege in the tunnel, occupies like 25% of the novel. So at first, they want to light everything on fire to block Bellamy and escape down the other side, but they can't because Joe's on the other side. Martin wants to take him out, but Claire insists she makes the shot, and she is a good shot, managing to take out several guys. Then there is a lot of guys coming in from the entrance, getting 
shot and this whole process just repeats for a while. Eventually the gang gets smart and travels down the tunnel while hugging the sides with a rope pulled taut between them and a lantern in the middle for light, thinking they will catch Martin and Claire trying to pass by them. But they get this idea when they're already halfway down the tunnel. Uh, so Martin and Claire had already doubled up behind them and escaped down the tunnel. But when they get to the exit, they come across another gang. Wah, wah, wah. The leader of this other gang is named Tom, and he states that a woman in his group, Mary Whittles, found Martin's wife, Helen, who was back at their lodge. Obviously, Martin is shocked because he thought she was dead. Tom goes into uh, his backstory and how he came across Helen. Uh, so he's living in the woods when he found Helen and the kids in the boat. Cold and unresponsive, he nursed them back to health, and he had a good reason other than the kindness of his heart. He actually remembered Martin from a trial where Martin defended him after a robbery went wrong and the owner got shot. So Tom was basically a good idea, good guy in a bad situation, and he thanks Martin for it. Uh, we then go into some of the, the rules of Tom's group. One of them is that women have the right of first choice for which man they want, but if they don't choose one, the first man to want her gets dibs. Look, it's the it's the late 1920s. Women only had the right to vote for like a couple of years now. Uh, so we're still doing this shit, okay? Anyway, the author also mentions that Tom was just a de facto leader and didn't really want to be the leader in the first place. And Tom does mention that the earlier women Martin found uh, that was dead was actually part of the group. He also says Bellamy's gang used to be a part of this group, but they rebelled and got kicked out. Tom was actually just on his way to wipe them out, Bellamy's gang, not Martin and Claire, but he saw smoke coming from the tunnel. It was only after it cleared that he came across Martin. So Martin says, hey, I might as well join these guys, but what to do with this stuff? It causes issues at first, but Martin gets the idea to auction it off, which apparently among these people is so ingenious of a decision that they make Martin their leader. Uh, Martin's reluctant at first, but eventually is like, fine, I'll do it. We then get to the final stretch of the book. We're introduced to Jerry Cooper, another camp leader. He used to be a town councilman and wants to be wants the future to be more militaristic. He has no women or children in his camp, and I guess he's thinking them weak. Joe the jockey, who managed to escape, tells Jerry that Tom's camp is easy pickings, but they have a saving grace. A character named Martha spots Jerry's brigade heading Tom's way, and she sends her minor son, Davy, on a bike to go warn them. Uh, there's this whole bikes are good, cars are bad element throughout the book, uh, which is why it's a bike, bicycle Davy rides on. I'll touch on these anti-industrialization elements uh, after the summary. So Davy warns Tom, then Tom becomes concerned because they are still some ways from the lodge where Helen is. Claire volunteers to go off with Davy to check in on Helen. Unfortunately, Joe has the same idea. By the time Claire gets to the lodge, Helen has been taken by Claire, but they manage to pick up the trail. Claire rescues Helen after she shoots the, the sh shoots the soldier that took her. Helen is so overwhelmed by Claire doing this that she describes Claire as some sort of Valkyrie, but Joe still has the kids. Uh, I like that analogy, by the way. Uh, Claire catches up with uh, Joe to, with a faster horse, and it seems like Joe is going to get away. But because he is passing by Martha's house, just out of the blue, Martha throws a broom at the horse, and the horse falls. Joe flies off. Claire gets the kids. Then after they return to the lodge, Helen and Claire have a talk about where they both stand with Martin. Essentially, they both get it. They were lonely. 
Both thought the other dead. It was understandable. The final battle uh, comes up. Cooper launches a final raid, loses a lot of his forces in the process. Tom's group retaliates and wins. Jerry, uh, they find out, was using an old manor left by a landed gentry guy named Stacy Dobson, who was a nice guy, but in this world, that gets you murdered. When the apocalypse happened, Stacy just let it happen and continued living his wife as, not, not wife, his life as he always had. When Jerry's gang showed up, he told the servants to hide. Stacy did, not Jerry. Uh, and that's pretty much when he died, because he was just like, oh, whatever. Martin takes over the manor and finds at least one servant, Betsy, still alive. And all she wants to do is just serve whoever owns the manor. That's it. Doesn't matter who it is. I still want to keep my job, because some people just can't stand changing their routine. Before the book ends, Helen goes back to Martin. Uh, and because he left Claire, Tom has a meeting about who Claire will choose. Against Martin's permission, he has this meeting, uh, and Martin doesn't like it because he's the guy that calls the meetings now. I mean, he's in charge after all. I guess Tom wasn't too aware of that because he used to do it for the the longest time, and didn't really. He's still getting used to the fact that no, he's not the leader anymore. Anyway, uh, Tom kind of wants Claire to choose him, but in the end, Claire chooses Martin. Uh, how that's going to work out, because Martin's already with Helen, I don't know. But I guess they got some sort of early polyamory thing going on here? Sure? Uh, so that's Deluge. Now, Dawn is a little shorter, and it wasn't as well received. So I will talk about it uh, a little less. So it's not a sequel or a prequel, but an equal if that makes sense just think of it as a bonus content to deluge uh, 50 percent of the novel is pretty much just backtracking and reminding the reader of everything that happened in deluge we start the book off with from the perspective of a woman named muriel temple who was 35 unmarried which for this time period period was like what and she also has a terminal illness she does well for herself in the beginning uh, again another strong female character then Tom's camp finds her, where she becomes an unofficial leader, along with Tom. Then there are some backstories on other characters, and they do get into the meat of the conflict between Tom and Jerry. And I'm not making that up, it just happens to be a coincidence with the cartoon. I thought the same thing myself. We are also introduced to another faction, and another female leader for Tom to end up with. Or not female leader, female character for Tom to end up with, named Dahl coincidentally convenient and she is a looker two men go after her she chooses one cheats on him with the other by whom she gets pregnant uh, tom gives her a stern look or a stern talking about this which causes her to seek out a doctor for an abortion but it goes wrong and she dies as a result it's sad tom didn't know about this and when he finds the doctor he picks uh, he kicks him out of the camp the baby's father is so angry that he tracks the doctor down to get revenge, and he does this by offering shelter first, earning the doctor's trust, then killing him. And that's all the details I have on Dawn. So there you have it, Delusion Dawn. Um, despite it being pro-women, in a sense, there is a thread of anti-Irishness in the book, and a throwaway line about how Africa is full of savages. Again, it was the 1920s. 
Uh, to give some background into the book and of the author, uh, S. Fowler Wright did have some success with a previous work he had self-published. So when this book wasn't doing so hot, he uh, self-published it too, which in 1928 was an epic feat, epic enough that it garnered the attention of the Cosmopolitan Book Corporation uh, and was actually made into a film only five years later. I think that might be a first for this podcast. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so it was his first successful novel, allowing him to pursue full-time writing. Like how my novel will allow me to do that. Uh, that's not wishful thinking, now is it? <laughs> uh, before this, he did have little experience writing science fiction, and and it is also considered post-apocalyptic by not just me. So there you have it. Proof that sometimes, just sometimes, post-apocalyptic can also be sci-fi, but not always. It is considered an influential book by today's standards and did influence John Wyndham, John Christopher, and The World's End, a book by Storm Jamison. I know that last last one sounds like a porn name, but I assure you it isn't. It also had an influence on the 2008 novel Flood by Stephen Baxter, where deep seismic activity unleashes reservoirs of water underneath the Earth's crust. Uh, But that's a story for another time. And a bunch more prominent people uh, at the time liked it, but I won't bore you with each individual name. All in all, this book belongs to a subgenre of post-apocalyptic called The Cozy Catastrophe, which is uh, just something happens, but the main characters survive, aren't too traumatized, and almost have a better life under the uh, new world that's created. But not everyone liked it. Hey, you can't please everyone, am I right? Uh, some of the criticisms state it was, uh, despite what I said about how it portrays women, full of prejudices and the main character, uh, Claire, uh, was too one-dimensional. Uh, the book as a whole is an argument against a lot of the sci-fi concepts H.G. Wells espoused. Essentially, Wells was all like, technology is going to make the future better, and Wright was like, no, technology is only going to make our bad tendencies, is only going to take our bad tendencies and make them worse. That's why Fowler Wright societies are depicted as simpler, noble, nobler, and more admirable and natural rather than savage like other post-apocalyptic. I can f- kind of see why he'd say this. I mean, at so many points in history, we made something that we thought was going to get rid of bad problems, and it didn't. So an example is the machine gun. When people invented the machine gun, I'm not making this up, they thought people would see the machine gun mowing people down. It's horrific powerfulness and realize the futility of war and just stop it which seems kind of ridiculous given how war looks like nowadays and there's also social media people thought it was this thing that was going to make things better and bring us all together and uh, it certainly has but as if you've ever watched the social dilemma and seen a lot of uh trolls and bubbles and uh division online like we all have it really haven't hasn't uh, I think humanity tends to fall into this no, no, trap of there's always this idea of we're going to have this, and once we have this, everything will be fine. We won't complain about anything anymore ever again. But that's rarely the case. Also, um, I understand the whole concept of simplicity uh, being better. When you say look at tribes in the Amazon, I mean, they may not have access to our medicine and our technology and our knowledge of the world, but also a very simple tribe has like no crime, no poverty. They don't have domestic violence. 
they they don't have the arguments and division we do. Every they they have something that works. They don't have the no one's overworked, for example. I mean, not to say they don't have problems, but uh, it's one of those things where you look at it and you go, well, I wouldn't say we're better than that. And 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 I think another thing before I, I continue is um you know we're advancing but i don't think our world's getting better and better and better we have to go faster faster more 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 now 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 go go rush 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 but why are are we happier as a species um i don't think i i think misery and burnout are at an all-time high despite technology technology we have so um that's a little something i just thought about when fowler Wright made the commentaries on technologies that he he did uh that, that that's just me so uh before i peace out i will say that there is a similarity here with two of the previous works i've covered after london and theodore savage uh particularly with after london it's mostly how it takes place in england with primitive medieval societies which comes up a lot more than you'd think in this podcast and with theodore savage it's also post-apocalyptic england with primitive with primitives roaming around and women getting pregnant and sometimes getting treated improperly more than I'd like. Also, there's this whole man survives disaster, woman survives disaster, man and woman meet. Woman is kind of secondary, not as well fleshed out. Things between man and woman heat up. Woman almost always gets pregnant. Things like that. Those are the similarities I noticed between this and uh, some previous stuff, especially After London and Theodore Savage. So that's this week's book. Delusion Dawn by S. Fowler Wright. Would I recommend it? Sure, why the hell not? Simply because of what others have said about it, because of how influential and it's the legacy it's left, and because of what I've got coming up on the podcast next week, which is... Another one by S. Fowler Wright. This time it'll be about technology run amok. I'm guessing. All I know at the moment is the book is called Automata. And all I can tell you is, I can't wait to dive into it. You've been listening to another episode of Tales from the Desolate Highway. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at UnusualAuthor and Instagram at UnconventionalAuthor. As always, thanks for tuning in.